Uh, my name is Fritz Games, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here as well, and it's uh, good to have you here. If I've not met you, I would love to meet you by the end of the day. Um, let me again pray for us. God, as was prayed earlier, thank you for your word, both the blessing of hearing it uh, read and, uh, Lord, in anticipation of hearing it preached and proclaimed. God, we do not take this lightly. We do this every week, the first day of the week. Uh, it can become old hat, uh, but we pray that it would not be today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would indeed fulfill all of the promises that Jesus has made in the farewell discourse about your spirit and your church uh, and even unto the world. We pray for that today. We pray that you would be glorified through that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I grew up in uh, South Mississippi out in the country uh, in an area called Hikes Retreat and uh, attended Hikes Retreat Baptist Church. It was sort of your just good old country Southern Baptist Church. And uh, to be honest, there were a lot of people there that um, had faith, uh, but there were a couple people that you, you knew um, when they spoke or when they prayed, you're like, this guy hangs out with God. And uh, there was a, a gentleman there named Brother Steve Smith. He was an elderly gentleman. He sat up front. And at Hikes Retreat Baptist Church, at the close of the service, there was not a benediction. The pastor would ask someone to pray. And when he would ask Brother Steve Smith, all of us boys that sat in the very back row would just cringe because we knew Brother Steve was going to pray for three to five minutes. He always had a long, wordy prayer. Looking back on that now, I understand that. But back then as a kid, it was just a long, wordy prayer that I wished would end so I could go home and eat. How do we understand this long prayer today? It is a very wordy prayer. You could probably have 12 sermons. Uh, we decided to do one. <laughs> But I want us to start by thinking about the controlling thought, the controlling idea. And this is how I want you to think about it. I want you to think about a, a party I went to, my wife and I went to Friday night. It was for our neighbor and friend who turned 60. And this neighbor and friend is a, he is just an exceptionally loving person, exceptionally hospitable he, in a word, I would call him expansive. He's just expansively generous with everything he has. I have tools that are sitting in my garage just because he wants me to have them. My bike rack is his bike rack. He wants me to have it. I have his blower because mine is broken. He wants people in his home, and he wants to feed them and cook for them. He will give you the shirt off of his back, proverbially speaking, and and now his wife, who loves him dearly, and they love each other dearly, wanted to have a birthday party, and it was a surprise party, which was going to be hard in itself to, to, to pull this off. And it was such a beautiful picture to walk up, and he's standing at the door, and he has this huge grin on his face because he had no idea this was coming. He was actually mad that day about something. And all these people that he has loved are now surrounding him with love. 
And the whole time I thought, I wish I could have my church there. This is so awesome. I want everybody I know and love to be here, right? To experience and enjoy this expansive joy and generosity. This life. That's really what this prayer is about. Jesus wants something for you and for others. He desires something for you and for others. And that is to share in the expanse of love and joy and glory that He has had with His Father and the Holy Spirit for eternity. He wants you invited to that party. Let me just try to summarize what Amy just read. We are at the final act in the drama of redemption. It's about to commence. Jesus, who has authority over all flesh, does what with His authority? He doesn't go around swinging a hammer and telling everybody what to do. What He does with His authority is He lays His life down and He goes to the cross for people that will scatter. He will die for His people. And in that death, He will be glorified. And He is praying for us in the midst of this. He is on the brink of that and He's praying for you. And He's praying for others. Specifically, He is praying that we would be kept and protected in this world, not taken out of it, that we would be set apart and consecrated to be sent into this world with the truth of the gospel and that other people would be brought into that expansive, generous glory and love that He and the Father and the Holy Spirit enjoy. Do you see that? That's what this prayer is about. He wants us and others to come to the party. That's his prayer. We're going to break it down into four reasonably concise headings. He prays, for whom he prays, for what he prays, and why he prays. First of all, he prays. The context, again, is the imminent departure of Jesus. And what does Jesus do right before he departs? Well, he preaches, speaks this long sermon in chapters 14 through 16. And then what does he do finally? And right before he goes to the cross, right before he is betrayed, he prays. And the reason he prays, we're going to get to the bigger reason in a minute, but two just small specific things. He prays, first of all, because God is sovereign. There is an interweaving of God's sovereignty all through the Gospel of John. We see it. You just go to chapter 6 if you really want it to jump off of the page. But we see it even in this prayer. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. God is sovereign over who His people are. What the Bible calls His elect, His Chosen. Verse 12, God is over even those who refuse Him. Judas, the son of perdition. In other words, everything that is happening here, even His own departure, especially His going to the cross, 
is all according to God's sovereign plan. He knows he is going. He willingly goes to the cross. He knows God is powerful. He knows that God is omnipotent. He knows that God is the sovereign king. And what does he do? Just rest in that and say, God's will be done. Have at it. He prays. Do you see that? He doesn't try to figure out human responsibility and God's sovereignty. He doesn't even read a book on it, though that's helpful. Because it's true, in light of the truth of it, he prays. He prays because God is sovereign, and he prays because he is human. Way back in John chapter 1, Murray preached, the Word became flesh. This eternal second person of the Trinity, the Word, Jesus, came and dwelt among us as what? Flesh. He was a man just like us. As was Jesus' custom, he prayed. The other gospel accounts give us the account of Gethsemane, where Jesus is agonizing over the cross. He's agonizing over God's will and God's plan and God's sovereignty. And he even says to God, I know you're sovereign, but if you take this cup, you can have it back. But your will be done. He prays because God is sovereign and he prays because he is human. Jesus is human. Do you realize how human you are? Jesus is inviting us, even through his example, to pray. Let me ask you this question. It's, it's sort of a question that Paul asked in Philippians 4. I'm framing it as a question. You know the passage is about anxiety and prayer. Do not be anxious. You know this one, right? What is the antidote to anxiety? What's the preventative medicine for anxiety? He doesn't say you're never going to be anxious. You're never going to be stressed out. You're never going to have problems. He doesn't say that. He says when you're anxious, what do you do with it? Do you just sit in your anxiety or do you pray your anxiety to God? Take your anxiety to God. One writer said this, most of the stress compelling us to seek God for solutions at the last minute is caused because we don't have a, a constant fellowship with God. If you want to see your anxiety at least diminished, pray because you are human and because God is sovereign. Secondly, for whom he prays. The content of Jesus' prayer, even when it has something to do with him and his imminent departure, really, if you look at it, has everything to do with others. His prayer is other-centered. If this were me on death row, do you think I'd be praying for y'all? I'm sorry, I wouldn't. I'd be like, God, take me in your kingdom, please. This better be true. Can I have a steak? No, that's not what he prays. His requests revolve around us and others. Look at verse 6 and verse 9. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. He's going to pray for the world in a minute, but right now he's saying, I'm focusing on the church. The early disciples really is what he's talking about. The ones you have given me. And notice how he does describe the disciples and by implication the church. The ones you have given me. Just think about that for a second. That could be a whole sermon that you as the church are a gift from the Father to the Son. Corinthians actually says Jesus is going to return that gift to the Father one day. Beautiful picture, but we'll let somebody else preach that sermon. Secondly, verse 20, he not only prays for the early disciples, he prays for the early church. He prays for those who what? Will believe because of the disciples. Verse 23, then he goes on to pray for those in the world who will believe why God sent Jesus and the love behind his being sent. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is praying for you and for others. He prays because God is sovereign and because he's human and he prays for you and others who will believe. Raise your hand. We don't do this very often in the Presbyterian church, but we're going to do it today. Raise your hand if you can, you're a Christian and you can trace your coming to faith as a result of someone's prayer. The rest of you didn't, just haven't found out who prayed yet. You will in heaven one day. My mother prayed for me and my brothers for years. She didn't believe in the covenant like we do, but she believed the whole essence of it, that God had to save these rascally boys. When I got to college, I saw the fruit of that prayer. There's no tears in my notes, I promise, but... I found other rascally boys and did rascally things. And there was a campus ministry there called RUF, and they were starting to grow and get some momentum. And a lot of girls were coming, and you'd think that would bring boys. There weren't a lot of guys, and the guys that were there decided to get together with the campus minister and pray. Every week they would pray on Tuesdays. They would pray for males to be converted. About six to eight months later, my roommate and I both had an awakening. Sweet mate, the roughest guy on campus, had an awakening. Eight of us became Christians. You are the result of someone praying. Jesus, yes, interceding for you. He continues to do this, right? The Holy Spirit. But do you realize the privilege that you have? I know you feel like none of your non-Christian friends could care less about Jesus. I know it. I have them too. And it can feel hopeless sometimes. And if you read all the stuff, you'll even feel more hopeless. And you look at all the statistics... Jesus doesn't care about statistics. God is sovereign. Pray. And others will believe because of your prayers. 
Thirdly, for what he prays. This is really the meat of the prayer. It's a bunch of petitions. It's got some great theology in it. It's a lot of conversation, and it's a ton of requests. The entire Lord's Prayer are a bunch of requests. So if you struggle to pray, just start asking for things and see what happens. You might find yourself praising God. You might even hear good theology coming out of your mouth. And you might start thanking God as you see God speak to you. Anyway, that's a whole side point. But here are the three things I want to highlight. The request number one, verses one through five, is that this cycle of glory that we have been talking about, and he talks about in verses one through five, will be completed. Look at verse one. He wants God to glorify the Son. Why? So that God the Father can be glorified. There's that cycle of glory. Remember we talked about at the end of a play or a musical when they're on stage and they're saying, you get the glory. No, you get the glory. They all get the glory. And it's just this big, beautiful cycle of Trinitarian glory that Jesus once completed. Verse 4, His entire life, His whole purpose in life I think he got this from our bulletin, actually. It's to bring God glory. Verse 5. Glorify me in your presence with what? The glory that we had before the world existed. Do you see it? The word glory, obviously, we, many of you know, means weighty. One commentator says to be clothed in splendor. And, and think about what Jesus is saying. In Jesus' pre-incarnate state, before the Word became flesh, He had this exceeding glory and weightiness and splendor as God. And then He took the form of a man, right? He sort of set that glory to the side for the time being. And what He is praying is, Father, I want You to restore the factory settings of my pre-incarnate state. Glory. Second, oh, and by the way, we are consumed with glory, aren't we? Very often just not God's, ours and humans. Just watch the movie Air. Bleep out some words, parents, not, okay, you know all that. It's all about glory. Second request, he wants you, the church, to be sanctified in truth, not just to be sanctified in truth. He wants you, the church, to be sanctified in truth, to be sent out with the truth. Verses 15 through 20. We can't go into all of these verses, but basically what he is saying is this. I don't want you to take the church out of the world. That's what the church wants. I know we're scared of the world. I know it makes us nervous. I know we get upset. I know all of these things. And he says, I want you in the world. Matter of fact, Jesus is being consecrated, set apart for the cross so that you can receive the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel, not just to revel in it, but to be sent out into the world with it. Go back and read verses 15 through 20. See, we look at sanctification, and rightly so, as 
growth and grace and all of those things, but it becomes so internal, so personal, we don't understand sometimes that God is setting us apart and sanctifying us and conforming us to Jesus' image and giving us the Holy Spirit to send us out on mission into this world. What is the Great Commission? It's not just to know the Word. It's to be sent out into the world and make disciples teaching and baptizing them. Third request. The disciples would be kept. If you heard Amy read, you heard the word kept over and over and over. What he does not mean by that is safety. Sorry. We've already seen that. He says you're going to go through tribulations. He's going to tell some of the disciples you're going to die for this, okay? That's not, he's not talking about your physical safety. But what he is saying is he is praying to the Father that the church and those brought into the church, you and others who will be brought in, would be kept together, would be one. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus believes in truth and Jesus believes in unity. We typically think those people don't get along. We're all for unity, but let's not talk about truth. We're all for truth, but let's not talk about getting along. Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the most economical, ecumenical person on the face of the planet. He's praying over and over. Why? Because he knows our tendency to divide over the tiniest, smallest things. Amen? Verse 20, he prays, even though when others are brought in, they too would be one. Jesus prays for the peace and the purity of the church. Well, some of you might ask, wait a minute. What about Judas? Well, I'd say 92% is pretty good, but one did fall away. If you read the letters of Paul, especially 1st and 2nd Timothy, he's always addressing people like this that are going to <clears throat> swerve from the truth. They're going to wander. Their faith will be shipwrecked. They'll stray. They'll turn away. They'll be snared by the devil. In our terms, their faith will be deconstructed. What do we do with those people? This is, I think this is Jesus' answer in John 17. God is sovereign over all of that. And His church will be one. Judas is in the Bible. And the disciples will be kept. And that should encourage us. If you are reasonably for loving one another and having peace and purity of the church and you actually go to people and talk to them instead of like just harboring that frustration and you work toward those things, you are an answer to Jesus' prayer. Finally, why He prays. Why does Jesus pray for his disciples? Why does he pray for would-be disciples? Why does he pray for what he prays 
Why does he pray that the disciples God has given him and will give him will persevere to the end through the tribulation in this world? They will keep the truth. They will share that truth and they will be kept by God. Why? And the answer, I think, is in verses 24 through 26. Father, you want to, if you want to know what Jesus wants, what Jesus desires... Here it is. I desire everything that I prayed that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Do you see what he's saying? Let's go back to the introduction Jesus is sharing this expansive glory and expansive joy and this generosity of love that He has with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. And why does He come to this earth? To capture a people, to rescue a people, to share that love with the church and others that will be brought in. Why? So that we can be with God forever and absolutely enjoy that together. That is your future if you are the church. See, Jesus has a generous, expansive heart. The good that has been in Him eternally stored up is overflowing. This great glory and love this life of peace and purity that He has with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He wants you to have it. He wants you and others to come to the party. He is like that child on Mother's Day that says, Mom, come. I want you to see this. I want you to have this. I built this for you. Jesus is going to say to us one day, just like He says in verse 24, Look at all my glory, and it's yours. He even says in verse 22 that you have that now. You share it. Final thought. How does he do that? How does he expand his love that is so expansive? Well, we already know the answer to that. It's His imminent departure to the cross where our understanding of glory is going to be a little different than Nike and Michael Jordan. What do I mean by that? See, there is a glory about greatness, is there not? When the guy kicks the winning goal at the end of the game, do they just kind of push him to the side? No, they put him on his shoulders and they run around and they glory in him and he glories in them and they all glory together and it's glorious, it's weighty, it's greatness. When you see Michael Jordan coming off that free throw, it's glorious. And you shouldn't look at that and go, oh, those non-Christians. No, it's glorious. But this is what we wouldn't have understood without God becoming a man. What does Jesus do with His glory? He unweights Himself. He sets that glory to the side. He takes that splendor and He, and he, he walks away from 
that exalted position, that pre-incarnate state. Philippians 2 says this, He empties Himself of that glory. He derobes. He de-exalts. He humbles Himself and becomes obedient even to the death of the cross. That is a whole nother realm of glory. But think about it. This morning, our 28-ish year old daughter, who's living with us till she gets married, I walk by her room and she says, Dad, can you get Mom? I go outside and my wife, who has raised five children, who has put all that to the side and served them and served them and served them, and now she's having a nice time reading her Bible, and I say, Babe, and Lenny needs you. What does she do? She pops up and runs, right? Where I would say, Let me just have my glory. See, there is a glory that Jesus brings that saves His people. The reason that we know that we can have that expansive glory of God and that we can see His glory, we can be brought to that party and brought into that kingdom is because Jesus left it all for you. He left heaven and took the form of a servant. And that is greatness. That is weightiness. That is splendor. That is Jesus. And that is what the church is to be. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your desire that we would not just see your glory. We would not just hear about it. But that we would receive the benefits of Jesus setting his glory to the side and expanding our minds and horizons about what glory really is. It's love for sinners. Because your heart is so generous, you want to share that eternal glory with your people. God, warm our hearts. Fill us with that love for others, Lord, that we would be set apart, consecrated to be sent into this world with the gospel for others, for your glory, that others might share it. In Christ's name, amen.